Chapter Ten of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Ten. No apartment house in Zenith had more resolutely experimented in condensation than the Revelstroke Arms, in which Paul and Zilla Risling had a flat. By sliding the beds into low closets, the bedrooms were converted into living rooms. The kitchens were cupboards, each containing an electric range, a copper sink, a glass refrigerator, and, very intermittently, a Balkan maid. Everything about the arms was excessively modern, and everything was compressed, except the garages. The Babbitts were calling on the Rislings at the arms. It was a speculative venture to call on the Rislings, interesting and sometimes disconcerting. Zilla was an active, strident, full-blown, high-blossom blonde. When she condescended to be good-humored, she was nervously amusing. Her comments on people were saltily satiric and penetratively of accepted hypocrisies. That's so, you said, and looked sheepish. She danced wildly and called on the world to be merry, but in the midst of it she would turn indignant. She was always becoming indignant. Life was a plot against her, and she exposed it furiously. She was affable tonight. She merrily hinted that Orville Jones wore a toupee, that Mrs. T. Charmaldi Frink's singing resembled a Ford going into high, and that the Honorable Otis Diebel, mayor of Zenith and candidate for Congress, was a flatulent fool, which was quite true. The Babbitts and Riesling sat doubtfully on stone-hard brocade chairs in the small living room of the flat with its mantle unprovided with a fireplace, and its strip of heavy gilt fabric upon a glaring new player piano, till Mrs. Risling shrieked, "'Come on, let's put up some pep in it. Get out your fiddle, Paul, and I'll try to make Georgie dance decently.' The Babbitts were in earnest. They were plotting for the escape to Maine, but when Mrs. Babbitt hinted with plump smilingness, "'Does Paul get as tired after the winter's work as Georgie does?' Then Zelia remembered an injury, and when Zelia Risling remembered an injury, the world stopped till something had been done about it. "'Does he get tired?' "'No, he doesn't get tired. He just goes crazy, that's all. You'd think Paul so reasonable. Oh, yes, and he loves to make out. He's a little lamb, but he's stubborn as a mule. Oh, if you had to live with him, you'd find out how sweet he is. He just pretends to be meek so he can have his own way. And me?' I get the credit for being a terrible old crank, but if I didn't blow up once in a while and get something started, we'd die of dry rot. He never wants to go any place, and why last evening, just because the car was out of order, and that was his fault, too, because he oughtn't to have taken it to the service station and had the battery looked at, and he didn't want to go down to the movies on the trolley. But we went, and then there was one of those impudent conductors, and Paul wouldn't do a thing. I was standing on a platform waiting for the people to let me into the car, and this beast of a conductor hollered at me. Come on, you move up. Why, I've never had anybody speak to me that way in all my life. I was so astonished, I just turned to him and said, I thought there must be some mistake. And so I said to him, perfectly pleasant, Well, are you speaking to me? And he went on and bellowed at me. Yes, I was. You're keeping the whole car from starting, he said, and then I saw he was one of those dirty, ill-bred hogs 
that kindness is wasted on and so i stopped and looked right at him and i said i beg your pardon i am not doing anything of the kind i said it's the people ahead of me who won't move up i said and furthermore let me tell you young man that you're a low-down foul-mouthed impertinent skunk i said and you're no gentleman i certainly intend to report you and we'll see i said whether a lady is to be insulted by any drunken bum that chooses to put on a ragged uniform and i thank you i said to keep your filthy abuse to yourself and then i waited for paul to show that he was half a man and come to my defense and he just stood there and pretended he hadn't heard a word and so i said to him well i said ah oh, cut it cut it zill paul groaned we all know i'm mollycoddle and you're a tender bud and let's let it go at that let it go zilia's face was wrinkled like the medusa her voice was a dagger of corroded brass she was full of the joy of righteousness and bad temper she was a crusader and like every crusader she exulted in the opportunity to be vicious in the name of virtue let it go if people knew how many things i've let go oh quit being such a bully yes a fine figure you'd cut if i didn't bully you you'd lie in bed till noon and play your idiotic fiddle till midnight you're born lazy and you're born shiftless and you were born cowardly paul riesling oh now don't say that zilia you don't mean a word of it protested mrs babbitt i will say that and i mean every last word of it oh now zilia the idea mrs babbitt was maternal and fussy she was no older than zilia but it she seemed so at first she was placid and puffy and mature whereas zilia at forty-five was so bleached and tight-corseted that you knew only that she was older than she looked the idea of talking to poor Paul like that. Poor Paul is right. We're both poor. We'd be in the poorhouse if I didn't jazz him up. Why, now, Zelia, Georgie and I were just saying how hard Paul's been working all year, and we were thinking it would be lovely if the boys could run off by themselves. I've been coaxing George to go up to Maine ahead of the rest of us and get the tired out of his system before we come and i think it would be lovely if paul could manage to get away and join him at this exposure of his plot to escape paul was startled out of impassivity he rubbed his fingers his hands twitched zelia braid yes you're lucky you can let george go and not have to watch him fat old george never peeps at another woman hasn't got the spunk the hell i haven't babbitt was fervently defending his priceless immorality when paul interrupted him and paul looked dangerous he rose quickly he said to zelia i suppose you imply i have a lot of sweethearts yes i do well then my dear since you ask for it there hasn't been a time in the last ten years why i haven't found some nice little girl to comfort me and as long as you continue your amiability i shall probably continue to deceive you it isn't hard you're so stupid Zilla glabbered, she howled. Words could not be distinguished in her slaver of abuse. Then the bland George F. Babbitt was transformed. If Paul was dangerous, if Zilla was a snake-locked fury, if the neat emotions suitable to the revelslike arms had been slashed into raw hatreds, it was Babbitt 
who was the most formidable. He leaped up. He seemed very large. He seized the other's shoulder. The cautions of the broker were wiped from his face, and his voice was cruel. "'I've had enough of this damn nonsense. I've known you for twenty-five years, Zill, and I never knew you to miss a chance to take your disappointments out on Paul. You're not wicked. You're worse. You're a fool. And let me tell you that Paul is the finest boy God ever made. Every decent person is sick and tired of your taking advantage of being a woman and springing every mean innuendo you can think of. Who the hell are you that a person like Paul?' should have to ask your permission to go with me. You act like you were a combination of Queen Victoria and Cleopatra. You fool. Can't you see how people snicker at you and sneer at you? Scylla was sobbing. I've never, I've never, I've, I've never been talked like this done all my life. No, but that's the way they talk behind your back always. They say you're a scolding woman. Oh, by God. That cowardly attack broke her. Her eyes were blank. She wept. But Babbitt glared stolidly. He felt that he was the all-powerful official in charge, that Paul and Mrs. Babbitt looked on him with awe, that he alone could handle this case. Still arrived, she begged. Oh, they don't. They certainly do. I've been a bad woman. I'm terribly sorry. I'll kill myself. I'll do anything. Oh, I'll... What do you want? She abased herself completely. Also, she enjoyed it. To the connoisseur of scenes, nothing is more enjoyable than a thorough, melodramatic, egotistic humility. I want you to let Paul beat it off to Maine with me, Babbitt demanded. How can I help his going? You've just said I was an idiot. Nobody paid any attention to me. Oh, you can help it, all right. All right. What you got to do is cut out hinting that the minute he gets out of your sight, he'll go chasing after some petticoat. Matter of fact, that's the way you start the boy off wrong. You ought to have more sense. Oh, I will. Honestly, I will, George. I know I was bad. Well, forgive me. All of you forgive me. She enjoyed it. So did Babbitt. He condemned magnificently, and forgave piously, and he went parading out with his wife. He was grandly explanatory to her. Kind of ashamed to bully Zilla, but, of course, it was the only way to handle her. Gosh, I certainly did have her crawling. She said calmly, Yes, you were horrid. You were showing off. You were having a lovely time thinking what a great fine person you were. Well, by golly, can you beat it? Of course, I might have expected you to not stand by me. I might have expected you'd stick up for your own sex. Yes, poor Zelia, she's so unhappy. She takes it out on Paul. She hasn't a single thing to do in that little flat. And she broods too much. And she used to be so pretty and gay. And she resents losing it. And you were just as nasty and as mean as could be. I'm not a bit proud of you, or of Paul boasting about his horrid love affairs. He was sulkily silent. He maintained his bad temper at a high level of outraged nobility. All the four blocks home. At the door, he left her, in self-approving haughtiness, and tramped the lawn. With a shock, it was revealed to him. Gosh, I wonder if she was right, if she was partially right. Overwork must have flayed him to abnormal sensitiveness. 
It was one of the few times in his life when he had queried his eternal excellence, and he perceived the summer night, smelled the wet grass. Then, I don't care. I've pulled it off. We're going to have our spree, and for Paul, I'd do anything. 2. They were buying their main tackle at Ijams Brothers, the sporting goods mart, with the help of Willis Ijams, fellow member of the Booster Club. Babbitt was completely mad. He trumpeted and danced. He muttered to Paul, Say, this is pretty good, eh? To be buying the stuff, eh? And good old Willis Ijams himself coming down to on the floor to wait on us. Hey, if those fellows that are getting their kit for the North Lakes knew we were clear up in Maine, they'd have a fit, eh? Well, come on, Brother Ijim, Willis, I mean. Here's your chance. We're a couple of easy marks. Whoo, uh, let me at it. I'm going to buy out the store. He gloated on fly rods and gorgeous rubber hip boots, on tents with celluloid windows and folding chairs and ice boxes. He simple-heartedly wanted to buy all of them. It was the Paul whom he was vaguely protecting who kept him from his drunken desires. But even Paul lightened when Willis Ijams, a salesman with poetry and diplomacy, discussed flies. Now, of course, you boys know, he said, the great scrap is between dry flies and wet flies. Personally, I'm for dry flies. More sporting. That's so. Lot more sporting fulminated Babbitt, who knew very little about flies, either wet or dry. Now, if you'll take my advice, George, you'll stock up well on these pale evening dims and silver sedges. And red ants, oh boy, there's a fly, that red ant. You bet, that's what it is, a fly, rejoiced Babbitt. Yes, sir, that red ant, said Ijams, is a real honest-to-God fly. Oh, I guess old Mr. Trout won't come a-hustlin' then I drop one of the red ants on the water, asserted Babbitt, and his thick wrist made a rapturous motion of casting. Yes, and the landlocked salmon will take it, too, said Ijams, who had never seen a landlocked salmon. Salmon? Trout? Say, Paul, can you see Uncle George with his khaki pants on haulin' them in? Some morn about seven? Whee! Three. They were on the New York Express, incredibly bound for Maine, incredibly without their families. They were free, in a man's world, in the smoking compartment of the Pullman. Outside of the car window was a glaze of darkness, stepped with the gold of infrequent mysterious lights. Babbitt was immensely conscious, in a sway and authoritative clatter of the train, of going, of going on. Leaning toward Paul, he grunted, Gosh, pretty nice to be hiking, eh? The small room with its walls of ochre-colored steel was filled mostly with the sort of men he classified as the best fellows you'll ever meet, real good mixers. There were four of them on the long seat, a fat man with a shrewd fat face, a knife-edged man in a green velour hat, a very young man with an imitation amber cigarette holder, and Babbitt facing them. On two movable leather chairs were Paul and a lanky old-fashioned man, very cunning with wrinkles bracketing his mouth. They all read newspapers or trade journals, boot and shoe journals, crockery journals, and waited for the joys of conversation. It was the very young man, now making his first journey by Pullman, who began it. Say, gee, I had a wild time in Zenith, he gloried, 
Say, if a fellow knows the ropes there, he can have as wild a time as he can in New York. Yeah, I bet you simply raised the old Ned. I figured you were a bad man when I saw you get on the train, chuckled the fat one. The others delightedly laid down their papers. Well, that's all right. Guess I seen some things in the arbor you never seen, complained the boy. Oh, I'll bet you did. I bet you lapped up the malted milk like a regular little devil. Then the boy, having served as introduction, they ignored him and charged into real talk. Only Paul, sitting by himself, reading at a serial story in a newspaper, failed to join them, and all but Babbitt regarded him as a snob, an eccentric, a person of no spirit. Which of them said which has never been determined, it does not matter, since they all had the same ideas and expressed them always with the same ponderous and brassy assurance. If it was not Babbitt who was delivering any given verdict, at least he was beaming on the Chancellor who did deliver it. And that, though, announced the first, they're selling quite some booze in Zenith. Guess they are everywhere. I don't know how you fellows feel about prohibition, but the way it strikes me is that it's a mighty beneficial thing for the poor sob that hasn't got any willpower, but for fellows like us, it's an infringement of personal liberty. That's a fact. Congress has got no right to interfere with a fellow's personal liberty, contended the second. A man came in from the car, but as all the seats were filled, he stood up while he smoked his cigarette. He was an outsider. He was not one of the old families of the smoking compartment. They looked upon him bleakly, and after trying to appear at ease by examining his chin in the mirror, he gave up and went out in silence. "'Just been making a trip through the South. Business condition is not very good down there,' said one of the council. "'That a fact. Not very good, eh?' "'No, it didn't strike me they were up to normal.' "'Not up to normal, eh?' "'No, I wouldn't hardly say they were.' The whole council nodded sagely and decided, "'Yep, not hardly up to snuff.' "'Well, business conditions ain't what they ought to be out west, neither. Not by a long shot.' "'That's a fact, and I guess the hotel business feels it.' That's one good thing, though. These hotels, they've been charging five bucks a day, yes, and maybe six, seven, for a rotten room or going darn good to get four, and maybe give you a little service. That's the fact. Well, it's been about hotels. I hit that St. Francis in San Francisco for the first time the other day, and, say, it certainly is a first-class place. You're right, brother. The St. Francis is a swell place, absolutely A-1. That's a fact. I'm right with you. It's a first-class place. Yeah, but say, any of you fellows ever stay at the Rippleton in Chicago? I don't want to knock. I believe in boosting whenever you can, but say, of all the rotten dumps that pass themselves off as first-class hotel, that's the worst. I'm going to get those guys one of these days, and I told them so. You know how I am? Well, maybe you don't know, but I'm accustomed to first-class accommodations. And I'm perfectly willing to pay reasonable price. I get into Chicago late the other night, and Rippleton's near the station. I've never been there before, but I says to the taxi drivers, always believe in taking a taxi when you get in late. May cost a little more money, but gosh, it's worth it when you got to be up early next morning and out selling a lot of crabs. And I said to him, Oh, just drive me over to the Rippleton. 
Well, we got there, and I breezed up to the desk and says to the clerk, Well, brother, got a nice room with bath for Cousin Bill? Say, you'd have thought I'd sold him a second or, or ask him to work on Yom Kipper. He hands me the cold-boiled stare and yaps, I don't know, friend, I'll see. And he ducks behind the rim of a jig they keep track of the rooms on. Well, I guess he called up the Credit Association and American Security League to see if I was all right. He certainly took long enough, or maybe he just went to sleep. But finally, he comes out and looks at me like it hurts him, and croaks, I ain't think I can let you have a room and bath. Well, that's awful nice of you. Sorry to trouble you. How much you'll set me back, I says real sweet. It'll cost you seven bucks a day, friend, he says. Well, it was late, and anyway, it went down on my expense account. Gosh, if I'd been paying it instead of the firm, I'd be trampling the streets all night before I'd be let a hick tavern slick me seven, eight big round dollars, believe me. So I let it go at that. Well, the clerk wakes a nice young bellhop, fine lad, not a day over seventy-nine years old, fought at the Battle of Gettysburg and doesn't know it's over yet. Thought I was one of the Confederates, I guess, from the way he looked at me. And Rip Van Winkle took me up to something. I found out afterwards they called it a room. But first I thought there had been some mistake. I thought they were putting me in the Salvation Army collection box at seven per each and every diem. Gosh. Yeah, I heard of the Rippleton was pretty cheesy. Now, when I went to Chicago, I always stayed at the Blackstone or LaSalle, first-class places. Say, any of you fellows ever stay at uh, Birchdale at Terre Haute? How is it? Oh, uh, Birchdale, first-class hotel. Twelve minutes of conference on the state of hotels in South Bend, Flint, Dayton, Tulsa, Wichita, Fort Worth, Winona, Erie, Fargo, and Moose Jaw. Speaking about prices, the man in the Lavura had observed, fingering the elk tooth on his heavy watch chain, I'd like to know where they get this stuff about clothes coming down. Now you take this suit I got on. He pinched the trouser leg. Four years ago, paid forty-two fifty for it, and it was real sure enough value. Well, here the other day I went into a store back home and asked to see a suit, and the fellow yanks out some hand-me-downs that honest. I wouldn't put on a hired man. Just out of curiosity, ask him, what you charging for that junk? Junk, he says. What do you mean, junk? That's a swell piece of goods, all wool. Like hell. It was nice vegetable wool right off the old plantation. It's all wool, says, and we get sixty-seven ninety for it. Oh, you do, do you? I says. Not for me, you don't. I says. I walks right out on him. You bet. I says to the wife. Well, I said, as long as your strength holds out and you can go on putting a few more patches on Papa's pants, we'll just pass up buying clothes. That's right, brother. And just look at collars, for instance. Hey, wait! Fat man protested. What's the matter with collars? I'm selling collars. Do you realize the cost of labor on a collar is two hundred and seven percent above? They voted that if their old friend the fat man sold collars, then the price of collars was exactly what it should be. But all other clothing was tragically too expensive. They admired and loved one another now. They went profoundly into the science of business and indicated that the purpose of manufacturing a plow or a brick was so that it might be sold. To them, the romantic hero was no longer the knight, the wandering poet, the cowpuncher, the aviator, nor the brave young district attorney, but the great sales manager, who had an analysis of merchandising problems on his glass-topped desk.
whose title of nobility was go-getter, and who devoted himself and all his young samurai to the cosmic purpose of selling, not of selling anything in particular, for to be anybody in particular, but pure selling. The shop talk roused Paul Reelsing. Though he was a player of violins and an interestingly unhappy husband, he was also a very able salesman of tar roofing. He listened to the fat man's remarks on the value of house organs and bulletins as a method of jabbing up the boys on the road, and he himself offered one or two excellent thoughts on the use of two-cent stamps on circulars. Then he committed an offense against the holy law of the clan of good fellows. He became highbrow. They were entering a city. On the outskirts they passed a steel mill which flared in scarlet and orange flame that licked at the cadaverous stacks, at the iron-sheathed walls and sullen converters. "'My Lord, look at that! Beautiful!' said Paul. "'You bet it's beautiful, friend. That's the Shelling Horton steel plant. And they tell me old John Shelling made a good three million bones out of munitions during the war. The man with the velour hat said reverently, I didn't mean it. I mean, it's lovely the way the light pulls that picturesque yard, all littered with junk right out of the darkness, said Paul. He stared at him, while Babbitt crowed, Paul, there has certainly got to one of the great little eye for picturesque places and quaint sights and all that stuff. Been an author or something if he hadn't gone into the roofing line. Paul looked annoyed. Babbitt sometimes wondered if Paul appreciated his loyal boosting. The man in the velour hat grunted. Well, personally, I think Shelling Horton kept their works awfully dirty, bum-routing. But I don't suppose there's any law against calling them picturesque, if it gets you that way. Paul sulkily returned to his newspaper, and the conversation logically moved on to trains. What time we get into Pittsburgh? asked Babbitt. Pittsburgh? I think we get in it. No, that was last year's schedule. Wait a minute. Let's see. Got a timetable right here. One or four on time. Yeah, sure. We must be about on time. No, we aren't. We are seven minutes late. Last station. We were? Straight? My gosh, I thought we were right on time. No, we're about seven minutes late. Yep, that's right. Seven minutes late. The porter entered, a negro in white jacket with brass buttons. How late are we, George? growled the fat man. Did I don't know, sir. I think about on time, said the porter, folding towels and deftly tossing them up on the rack above the washbowls. The council stared at him gloomily, and when he was gone, they wailed. I don't know what's come over these niggers nowadays. They never give you a civil answer. That's a fact. They're getting so they don't have a single bit of respect for you. The old-fashioned coon was a fine old cuss. He knew his place. But these young dingies don't want to be porters or cotton pickers. Oh, no. They got to be lawyers, professors, and Lord knows what all. I'll tell you, it's becoming a pretty serious problem. We ought to get together and show the black man, yes, and the yellow man his place. Now, I haven't got one particle brace prejudice. I'm the first one to be glad when a nigger succeeds. So long as he stays where he belongs and doesn't try to usurp the rightful authority and business ability of the white man. That's right. Uh, and another thing we got to do, said the man with the velour hat, whose name was Koplinsky, is to keep those damn foreigners out of the country. Thank the Lord they're putting a limit on immigration. Those dagoes and hunkies, 
I've got a lot to learn. This is a white man's country, and they ain't wanted here. When we've assimilated the foreigners, we got here now and learned em the principles of Americanism and turned em into regular folks, well, maybe we'll let in a few more. You bet. That's a fact, they observed, and passed on to lighter topics. They rapidly reviewed motor car prices, tire mileage, oil stocks, fishing, and the prospects for the wheat crop in Dakota. But the fat man was impatient at this waste of time. He was a veteran traveler and free of illusions. Already he had asserted that he was an old he-one. He leaned forward, gathered in all their attention by his expression of sly humor, and grumbled, "'Oh, hell, boys, let's cut out the formality and get down to the stories.' They became very lively and intimate. Paul and the boy vanished. The others slid forward on the long seat, unbuttoned their vests, thrust their feet up on the chairs, pulled the stately brass cuspidors nearer, and ran the green window shade down on its little trolley to shut them from the uncomfortable strangeness of night. After each bark of laughter, they cried, Hey, did you ever hear the one about? Babbitt was expansive and virile. When the train stopped at an important station, the four men walked up and down the cement platform, under the vast, smoky train-shed roof like a stormy sky under the elevated footways, beside crates of ducks and sides of beef, in the mystery of an unknown city. They strolled abreast, old friends and well content. At the long-drawn, all aboard! Like a mountain call at dusk, they hastened back into the smoking compartment, and, till two in the morning, continued to droll tales, their eyes damp with cigar smoke and laughter. When they parted, they shook hands and chuckled, well, sir, it's been a great session. Sorry to bust it up. Mighty glad to meet you. Babbitt lay awake in the close, hot tomb of his Pullman berth, shaking with remembrance of the fat man's limerick about the lady who wished to be wild. He raised the shade. He lay with a puffy arm tucked between his head and the skimpy pillow, looking out on the sliding silhouettes of trees and village lamps like exclamation points. He was very happy. End of chapter 10